Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today we're bringing you the audio from a recent webinar we co-hosted on land use without zoning and putting those ideas into practice. Zoning and land use policy regulations present the greatest barriers to affordable housing and increased urban density. Understanding how to navigate and remove these barriers allows for a dynamic housing market and paves the way for successful community development efforts. Jim Burling of the Pacific Legal Foundation, Tori Gaddis of the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, and Emily Hamilton of the Mercatus Center discuss legal barriers to development, issues in modern land use policy, Houston land use regulation, and lessons we can learn from other cities, the case for preemption, and much more. If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this webinar, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Charles Coates of Texans for Housing will be moderating the discussion. Thank you so much for uh, joining this webinar. Uh, My name is Charles Coates. I am a founding member of Texans for Housing, which is a fairly young nonprofit that advocates for responsible, reasonable changes to state law in the state of Texas. We're really excited about this organization. Check it out if you can. And uh, I also work for Bryan College Station Habitat for Humanity in Texas. And uh, like many of you, I'm interested in this topic because I'm an affordable housing practitioner. And so I've, I've kind of seen how housing has become more and more difficult to build, difficult to share, difficult to use. Uh, so we're really excited to get to our, our panelists today. Uh, the title of this webinar is based on um, Mr. Segan, who wrote a book called Land Use Without Zoning, um, which has become quite a bit of a very well-known book when looking at uh, things like local zoning law. And we want to take this conversation further than the book and interview three panelists who will discuss how does this apply today and different aspects of zoning on communities. Our speakers today are Tori Gaddis, founding fellow of the Center for Opportunity Urbanism. Our second speaker is Emily Hamilton, who's a senior research fellow at the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And then finally, Jim Burling, vice president of legal affairs at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, Each of our speakers are going to give about a 10-minute discussion or or a um, prepared speech uh, about a certain aspect of this topic, and then we'll do a short Q&A. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tori, could you kick off the discussion today? Thanks, Charles. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of a background on what's happened in Houston, which is the the city that that Segan profiled in the book, uh, what's happened in Houston since 1972 when he wrote the book, and then a little bit about what that has yielded today in Houston and what other cities can learn from Houston's lack of zoning. Houston is the largest city in the country without zoning. It has defeated zoning three times, once since the book was written, twice before the book. Back in 1991, the city council started a new zoning plan, went through two years of hearings, the mayor endorsed it, But uh, anti-zoners raised more than three times as much money uh, and put a lot of it into television print ads. They kind of raised the specter of vast government apparatus intruding into citizens' lives, which I think is becoming a more and more accepted view on zoning. And they even talked about it being a tool of segregation, uh, echoes of today's exclusionary zoning. And it it ultimately did fail in 1993, 52 to 48 percent, the election on that. 
Barry Klein was a leader of the opposition through his Houston Property Rights Association, and he may be attending today. And so shout out to Barry. His efforts have absolutely changed the trajectory of Houston. There was a lot of low income and minority opposition to the zoning referendum. Some of the key arguments that that ended up killing it were that it would, would restrict restrict churches, kill jobs in the black community, that the zoning would segregate minorities, that it would raise rents and taxes, and that it would kill redevelopment and, and zoning, which uh, breeds uh, and that the zoning would breed slums. So a subsequent city charter amendment made it uh, any future zoning ordinance so onerous as to pretty much be impractical in the city of Houston, which they also got passed that same year, the city charter amendment. And so since then, Houston's pretty much sort of accepted and actually at this point wears it as a bit of a badge of honor not having zoning. Uh, former Houston planning director Pat Walsh was quoted as saying, um, what we found is that our system actually works fairly well. Developer doesn't want to build a single family house next to an industrial facility and the market prevents that from happening. And you see that all over Houston. You really, the incompatible land uses typically just do not happen next to each other just because of market-based pricing. There are still some permitting rules. Uh, we have height restrictions near single ha- family homes, really not so much height restrictions as setbacks. We had a problem with, a, it's called the Ashby High Rise controversy, where they were trying to put a residential tower in a, in a single family neighborhood that was just too close to homes. And so they passed a new law about setbacks for those types of towers. We have historic preservation districts, which is uh, are currently being contested at the Texas Supreme Court by Matt Festa, who may also be on here as, as sort of illegal zoning. Uh, we have bans on sexually oriented businesses and liquor stores within certain distance of schools and churches. But the two biggest ones that get talked about a lot is we do. Houston still has minimum parking requirements and minimum lot sizes. The minimum lot sizes really have been relaxed dramatically. They went from 5,000 square feet to 1,400 square feet inside the 610 Loop freeway back in 1999. And that has enabled thousands and thousands of townhomes uh, inside the city as uh, lots got subdivided and redeveloped, uh, very affordable townhomes right in the center of the city. Those reduced minimum lot sizes were extended to the entire city outside the loop in 2007. And neighborhoods can petition for larger minimum lot sizes, individual neighborhoods, which really diffuse the opposition. And is sort of one of my recommended political strategies in general, figure out what you want your base policy to be, but then allow individual neighborhoods to opt out. And it really diffuses a lot of the opposition. As far as no minimum parking, we have, we call it market-based parking. Uh, that zone used to just be downtown has been expanded to include a large neighborhood called Edo, East Downtown and Midtown in 2019. And they expect to keep expanding that zone of market-based parking over time as people see that it doesn't cause chaos. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, I'd say the biggest fear, a lot of the urban neighborhoods fear being overrun with people parking on the street as they go to nearby businesses, especially bars. So it is still a little politically controversial to to, to loosen up the, the minimum parking, but that that is definitely going in that direction. Three different Texas cities have used city charter amendments to stop zoning, uh, not just Houston, but also Alvin and Rosenberg. And these uh, charter amendments are some of the easiest ways to sort of relax or push back zoning, uh, sort of the populist approach. So today, so what do we have? You know, what 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 has Houston turned into by having not having zoning? Uh, having a very high housing supply has kept homes very affordable here. It's really enabled by by some my analysis the highest standard of living in the country among major metros based on cost of living adjusted average salaries. Take the average salary adjusted for cost of living, and you can live better in Houston than any of the major metros in America. I believe cities focus a bit too much on economic development, on attracting high paying jobs when they could do a lot more to reduce their cost of living for even higher benefits. You know, instead of just the people benefiting who get those new high paying jobs, 
you can help everybody in your city if you can reduce the cost of living. When you have a lower cost of living, it creates a higher discretionary income. And that drives a lot of vibrant amenities in a city when people have extra money after uh, paying the rent. So they can spend on things like restaurants. Uh, Houston has a hyper competitive market in restaurants. It's gotten, we've gotten a lot of acclaim for our food, including uh, GQ calling us the capital of Southern cool because of the, the, the restaurants and the food here. Uh, we eat out more often at a lower average price than any other city in the country, according to Zagat. And it's a huge quality of life boost that's attracted about a million newcomers every decade for decades. So there's a lot of advantages to, to not having zoning in Houston. And, you know, that leads to sort of what could other cities learn? I think there's a lot of kind of a growing anti-single family zoning sentiment in urban planning circles right now uh, as exclusionary zoning, essentially. Um, but that does risk running into a lot of political opposition when you start to say we're going to loosen up single family zoning. I think legalizing ADUs, uh, accessory dwelling units, is, is fairly easy, but duplexes, triple, uh, triplexes, those sorts of things, you that's how you can definitely poke a hornet's nest of political opposition. Um, maybe if you do it, but allow individual neighborhoods to petition, to opt out. But I think once people see the value it adds to their home, and and, and Houston, you'll see it, you can get a lot of value in your home having that flexibility. They may choose not to opt out. But really in the big picture, I'd say Houston's secret sauce is not so much about single family zoning. We do have deed restrictions and they're very similar in the single family neighborhoods in terms of what they protect. But what I would say Houston's real secret sauce is, is, is allowing pretty much anything else everywhere that's not single family. So if it's not deed restricted to single family, it can be apartments, it can be townhomes, it can be towers, it can be retail, it can be mixed use, it can be offices, you name it. And there's especially an opportunity in a lot of cities these days to repurpose dying malls into large mixed-use developments with substantial residential components. So I think getting cities to loosen up the the commercial and industrial zones could be a lot less political opposition and yield far more multifamily housing that can be created quicker and help increase affordability in a lot of these cities. First of all, when talking about Houston, you mentioned deed restrictions and and that they they serve their own purpose or they they do their own land use job in Houston. Do you feel that the deed restrictions play a similar role to zoning? Even though Houston doesn't have zoning, do the d- deed restrictions restrict housing in the same way uh, that, that zoning or is it something a little different? In the, so typically what it is, is a developer will buy a parcel of land and, and carve it up into single family homes and put deed restrictions on it that say, here's what you can and can't do with this home. Um, some are allowed to operate businesses out of their homes. Some are not. Some are allowed to, you know, have a duplex or triplex. Some are not. Um, but it protects those single-family neighborhoods, which is what a lot of people want to buy into. And so, in essence, it does create some of the same protections as single-family zoning. But you know, at the end of the day, that is still probably. I, I, I've wanted to know this exact percentage, but I'm going to guess it's less than half, or, or at most, two-thirds of the land in Houston. And so. All the rest of the land is wide open, and that's where you get the apartments. Now, deed restrictions can also lapse over time under certain sort of legal requirements if they're not renewed. And those are houses, especially in the valuable center parts of town, have often gotten turned into townhomes. So they get carved up into three or four townhomes on the same lot, and that really preserves the affordability. Whereas you'll see some central – Houston has some cities inside the city, uh, Bel Air, West University, the West Side Villages, and they are fully zoned, and those – when they get redeveloped, they're a million dollar, two million dollar house. Uh, that's that's all that can be done with that kind of land. But in in the city of Houston, that'll get subdivided and become three or four, three hundred thousand dollar homes, townhomes. Uh, and then we got a question from Stephen real quick, who was asking about deed restrictions as well. Is there any difference in how they essentially work 
when it comes to single family residential versus R1 zoning. That might be a little specific, but um, we'd like to hear more about deed restrictions on SFR and R1 zoning. I, I'm not familiar with R1 with the single family. So they, the, you know, um, a lot of these neighborhoods will have HOAs to, to enforce the deed restrictions, but the city of Houston actually will enforce deed restrictions. If, you know, even if you don't have an HOA, so a, a, a resident can petition to the city and say, this person's violating the deed restrictions. The city will provide legal resources and investigate and, and issue uh, legal orders if they have to. And so honestly has been probably a big part of what has helped keep Houston from going down the zoning path is that sort of automatic legal assistance to, to people who want to enforce the deed restrictions in their neighborhood. Got it. And in the couple of minutes we have left, I did have another question. How does land use uh, without zoning operate in Texas beyond the borders of a city? Broadly in Texas. Yeah. So one of, I, you know, I, I argue that this is sort of Texas's secret sauce as opposed to Houston is that they, the state of Texas does not allow zoning or land use regulation in the unincorporated counties on the edge of cities. So out in those unincorporated counties, the developers build large, affordable, super amenity rich master plan communities. They use something called a, a Texas Municipal Utility District, which is a, we use a MUD for an acronym, where a developer can float private bonds to build the infrastructure, build out the streets, the utilities, and it's paid back by taxes in that community. And so it creates this sort of thriving, competitive free market in housing development uh, where these communities compete against each other very aggressively, much more competi- competitive than you'd see between incorporated cities. Um, the Woodlands is a famous one around Houston, but there are literally you know, hundreds of these, Bridgeland, Cinco Ranch, they're very large examples. Um, and it really creates a huge, thriving, how, affordable housing community, housing market in, in Texas. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Uh, we need to move on to Emily next, but thank you so much, Tori, for your thoughts thanks, there. Emily, can you take it from here? Yeah, thanks a lot, Charles, and thanks to everyone who's joining us this afternoon. I'll be talking about the role that state policymakers have to step in and set some limits on the extent to which their localities can restrict housing construction and in turn contribute to housing affordability problems. So this is state preemption when uh, state policymakers pass laws that affect properties in portions or all of their state setting limits on how much development rights can be regulated for those properties. And state policymakers have at least three good reasons to step in with these preemption laws. The first is to protect property rights of property owners across their states. And we've seen examples of this with laws like ADU preemption that Tori touched on briefly. So laws that give homeowners across a state the right to build a backyard cottage or a garage or basement apartment within their property, expanding development rights um, in a, a relatively marginal way, but in a way that equally protects property owners across the state from local restrictions. The second is when local zoning rules cause statewide problems, whether that's a housing affordability problem or infrastructure or stormwater problems, issues caused by local regulations that spill across municipal borders. And in the case of affordability, uh, Bernard Segan in Land Use Without Zoning, one of his most salient points is that this property rights issue and the affordability issue are really two sides of the same coin. 
when local rule, zoning rules and other land use restrictions make it really difficult for property owners to build more housing, this leads to affordability problems that affect not just the locality in question, but entire regions or states as a whole. And in contrast, when we see examples like Houston, where development rights are um, relatively um, liberally regulated and dispersed, we see that a city that can grow and accommodate new housing demand without the affordability problems that we see in other localities with similar growth rates. And the final reason that state policymakers may want to step in to set limits on local zoning is that local localities get their authority to pass land use regulations from their states. They get this authority when state policymakers pass laws that delegate some of the, the state's police power to regulate for things like health and safety rules to their localities. And so when localities are implementing restrictions that don't factor in the interests of state residents as a whole, they're arguably going beyond the, the authority that they have to act on behalf of their states. Uh, and we see this in cases where, for example, a, an exclusionary suburb with wealthy residents in a high-cost region might have regulations that are in the interests of the majority of their residents, but are opposed to the interests of residents in their broader region or in their state as a whole. Um, so that's a, a third reason why state policymakers may want to set limits on local zoning. And then lastly, I just wanted to touch on some of the, the bills that Texans for Housing is working on and pursuing for the next legislative session. These are three bills that really demonstrate the, the principles of why state policymakers have a role to set limits on local zoning. And these bills would preempt minimum lot sizes beyond a certain size, preempt parking requirements, or set limits on parking requirements across the state. And finally, address protest rights, which uh, is a, a statewide law in Texas that requires a supermajority approval of an upzoning that would affect an area in cases where 20% of the residents of the area that would be upzoned or immediately adjacent to that area oppose the policy change. Um, and, and this one really gets to the, the, the third reason for state preemption. State policymakers give the authority to zone to their um, localities and set the rules around which um, localities can implement those zoning restrictions. And when we see that those rules are leading to bad outcomes, state policymakers certainly have a role to play in, in revisiting those rules and attempting to improve them. Um, look forward to talking more about those Texans for Housing bills uh, with Charles, who uh, is uh, very much an expert in them. Yeah, thank you so much for, for mentioning those. And uh, like Emily said, this last legislative session, which is still going on, uh, we have really been pushing at Texans for Housing these, these three bills. And um, I kind of liked your take on the, the preemption issue. I did want to ask, 
And to give a little background, what I've noticed when going to local legislators throughout Texas and speaking to them about these three bills particularly, the ones that look like they're the most preemption and for some reason the minimum lot size this session, legislators really actually got very concerned about it as if they were taking authority back or taking it from uh, the localities. Um, And no one really wanted to touch it. We're going to keep working on it. And I think we will be successful. But are there other states where this is a similar issue of like a concern of stepping on the toes of of localities when you want to make reasonable housing changes at the state level? And um, are there any other states you know about um, that have figured out a way to overcome that issue? That's been a big issue for us. Sure. Yeah. Often we've seen opposition from both state legislators as well as organizations representing municipalities opposing state preemption and saying this is an issue that should be left up to localities or that even this is an authority that localities, you know, possess under state law or just the way things ought to be. If we look to the roots of where zoning authority comes from. It's always state policymakers who have that that constitutional authority to protect health, safety, and, and welfare of their residents and delegate it to their localities as they see is appropriate. So states are certainly on um, firm legal ground when they want to set limits on land use restrictions, even though there's often strong opposition from local governments and others. We've seen this a lot with some of the the single family reform bills. Of course, Oregon uh, successfully passed a single family preemption affecting many of its localities. But as as Tori said, there's often a lot of opposition to other single family preemption bills that have stood in their way. Several other states have seen legislators introduce bills similar to Oregon's, but so far uh, none have passed. Uh, But there is an exciting bill in Oregon that um, would go further than the single family zoning preemption to allow lot subdivision to between two to four units per existing or would allow subdivision to two to four lots among existing lots in the parts of the state that are affected by single family zoning preemption. So that's um, taking it in a more perhaps Houstonian direction uh, in allowing various different types of developments rather than um, limiting it to uh, multiple units on a single lot. Got it. And I got a really good question from the audience just now, not sure from whom, but it says, is there a concern that pushing the power, talking about preemption, pushing the power or decision-making, I think talking about zoning and making it more, pushing it away, I guess, from the localities, making it more centralized authority, state level versus local, will that be somehow problematic for the future? She or he says, I'm open to this, but um, have a... Hayekian concern about moving even more decision-making power further from individual. I think that's valid. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I would share those same concerns if we were seeing, for example, state policymakers stepping in to take over zoning from municipalities and to zone at a statewide level and do detailed 
land use planning at a statewide level. But uh, what we've really seen for the most part is state policymakers stepping in with laws that devolve development decisions from the locality to property owners, um, leading to what I would argue is a more Hayekian outcome where property owners have more authority to determine what type of development makes sense given conditions and prices that they face for their own land. Uh, We see this with laws that allow accessory dwelling units across a state or that go a little bit further um, with something like minimum lot sizes to grant more um, freedom to property owners to put their land to the, the use that they think is best. Okay, got it. And then what are the bill numbers for the three zoning preemption bills that Emily mentioned? I think that might be a question for me, yes. uh, but do you have them? <laughs> okay. Um, so we were not able to file the minimum lot size bill, unfortunately. So it didn't have an official number. Uh, the only one we were able to file this session is uh, the uh, what we call comprehensive zoning reform. But Emily talked about it as essentially preempting. It's a more cl- complex bill, but it, it's the one where it has to do with protest rights and not having a supermajority. And so that was HB 2989 in the state of Texas. And then the other one was, I believe, Senate Bill... 1220. Uh, So that's the one we were able to get filed this session. At the next session, definitely minimum lot size, uh, because we think, honestly, that's probably one of the most common sense ones to me anyways. It's easy to explain, easy to understand. We just have to get over this preemption thing. Um, And then finally, we have uh, one more question here that I can get to. I've got one that says, for communities that suffer for a lack of housing, why would there be any restrictions for housing in commercial or industrial zones? This may be a question for Emily or for everybody. I'm not sure. Uh, but it seems to be an easy fix for more housing with little or no NIMBY opposition. Yeah, well, this goes really to the, the root of the U.S. approach to zoning, which has been to segregate land uses, um, both se- separating commercial from residential, from industrial uses, as well as residential development of different densities from each other. This really was, was the, the main focus of the first zoning ordinance in the U.S., which was in New York City. It is, I think, correct that there is perhaps less opposition to reforming those rules that prevent residential development in commercial or industrial areas relative to changing zoning in um, areas that are currently exclusively low-density residential. Uh, We've seen some examples of successful commercial zoning reforms in the D.C. region where I live that have led to lots of multifamily development in those locations. One downside of only pursuing reform on commercial or industrial land is that it shuts off opportunities for people who are looking for a lower cost housing option, whether that's a townhouse or an apartment, from living in some of the the, the quieter, more residential parts of a city relative to reforming single family zoning. Well, Emily, thank you so much. That's all the time we have right now. But again, for all three of these panelists, they'll get a 
chance to to wrap up their thoughts and we'll have a little bit of Q&A. So I want to move on to Jim Burling with the Pacific Legal Foundation for his thoughts on this topic. Jim? Yeah, thank you. So I'm going to begin talking about the intersection of zoning and law in litigation against it. And to do this, I think it's best if I move back to 1910 to Baltimore, where a gentleman named George Meshin, he was a Yale-educated and very successful lawyer. He and his family moved into Utah Place in Baltimore. Uh, the problem was George McEachin and his family were all black and the neighborhood was all white. And this led to the first racially exclusive zoning ordinance in America, actually one of the first zoning ordinances in America. And it said quite, quite simply that, quote, no Negro can move into a block in which more than half the residents were white. And in a cynical hat tip to equality, it continued that no white person can move into a block in which more than half the residents are colored, end quote. Uh, and this proved to be very, very popular type of ordinance. And it began to spread like wildfire across the border states and into the south. And eventually it reached uh, Louisville, at which passed a very similar ordinance um, I should mention that the one in uh, Baltimore had some teeth. If, if you violated the law, you were punishable by a fine of not more than 100 bucks or imprisonment from 30 days to a year or both a fine and imprisonment. So uh, four years later in Louisville, it passed a very similar ordinance. But white business interests who bought and sold property didn't like it too much. And of course, uh, the black residents didn't like it very much at all either. So a white business interest, uh, interest uh, realtor named Buchanan got together with the head of the local newly formed NAACP, a gentleman named Worley, and they agreed to, for Buchanan to sell Worley a lot. And it had an interesting provision in the contract said, look, if there's any reason that I can't live in this house, the deal's off. So they had the contract, signed it, and then Worley backed out saying, look, I can't buy this lot because I'm not allowed to in which case they sued each other. But the point of the suit was to challenge the zoning ordinance, and it eventually reached the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional, not because it violated the Equal Protection Clause. Remember, this is a few years after Plessy versus Ferguson and the uh, upholding of Jim Crow. Uh, but it was that it was struck down on the basis that it violated the property rights of the landowner who is no longer able to sell it to a buyer of his choice. And so this was struck down in 1917 when the Supreme Court ruled on the issue. And that pretty much put zoning in its place until a few years later, where the first comprehensive zoning law was passed, as Emily said, in New York City. Uh, one of the rationales there was to stop the spread of uh, Jewish garment factories going up Fifth Avenue. And there was a great deal of concern about that. And so the zoning ordinance is passing what sort of uses shall be allowed in what places. Uh, these zoning ordinances themselves began to spread across the country because saw, people saw another way of preserving the status quo through zoning ordinances. And in the city of town of Euclid, Ohio, they passed a very similar ordinance in 1922. And it was, a, according to the Supreme Court, a comprehensive zoning plan for regulating and restricting the location of trades, industries, apartment houses, two-family homes, single-family houses, et cetera, the lot areas to be built upon, the size of the height buildings, et cetera. 
And so this was challenged by landowners who saw that the march of industrialization and commercialization from Cleveland was going to stop. They had counted on this. They had invested in this happening and being able to uh, develop their properties in a particular way for commercial activity. And they were told they could not do so. They were going to lose a lot of money. So they sued. And the trial court, federal trial court, initially struck down the ordinance. Uh, And it made it clear that the result here to be accomplished is to classify the population and segregate them according to their income or situation in life. It is a matter of income and wealth, and I'm quoting, of course, plus the labor and difficulty of procuring adequate domestic service. You can see the sort of things that people were concerned with back in uh, the 1920s. But the court then looked at the Baltimore Ordinance, which had struck down the racial zoning. And it essentially said that was for a salutary purpose of achieving a good end of making sure that you can have segregated zoning. And if that didn't pass muster with the Supreme Court, this economic zoning certainly isn't. And to make the trial court's opinion really clear what it thought about Euclid, uh, he continued, and this is this is a rather objectionable quote. So, if you don't like, if you like safe spaces, tune out for a second. Where the where the district court said, "quote The blading of property values and congesting of population whenever the colored or certain foreign races invade a residential section are so well known as to be within judicial cognizance." In other words. Racial zoning is a good thing because it protects existing neighborhoods. And this ordinance kind of does the same thing, but doesn't go as far. So if that one wasn't good, this one certainly isn't. Well, the Supreme Court reversed. The U.S. Supreme Court took the case up and it first of all talked about apartment houses. And it has pointed out that the development of detached houses sections is greatly retarded by the coming of apartment houses which have sometimes resulted in destroying an entire section of private house purposes. That is, such sections are often where the apartment house is a mere parasite. And so the court continued that it's a question of a particular thing as a nuisance uh, to be determined not by abstract consideration of building or a thing considered a part, but considering it in connection with the circumstances of the locality. A nuisance may be merely the right thing in the wrong place, like a pig in a parlor instead of in the barnyard. And so apartment buildings, multifamily houses, which attract immigrants, are a nuisance. They are a blight on existing nice neighborhoods. And so there the court upheld the zoning ordinance, and it said there were could be some limits. But by and large, those limits had been ignored for ever since 1922 when the decision came down. And so this is one of the battles that we have in trying to challenge zoning ordinances in court, is that the courts have paid a great deal of solicitude to these ordinances over time. Um, The next thing that we look at quite often is the new modern replacement of Euclidean zoning, and that is environmental statutes, which often achieve the same thing through litigation. Somebody can want to build a development that meets the zoning code, but they still can't do it because of years worth of litigation under the National Environmental Policy Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, and the California Environmental Quality Act in particular. In California, environmental documents have to study over 100 different environmental topics. 
And any person can anonymously challenge in court under CEQA grounds by anonymously you create a send friends of the neighborhood, but you don't have to say who the friends are. And you can challenge under CEQA grounds at little cost and have a 50-50 chance of stopping the project or at least slowing it down so it can be restudied from scratch, modified, or abandoned. Uh, one book was written about modern zoning, and it, here's a nice quote. California has always been notorious for being the first jurisdiction to sustain extreme municipal regulations. Practitioners in other states have joked about why a developer would sue a California community when it would cost a lot less and save much time if the developer simply slit his throat. Now, we have examples of cases using environmental litigation in California to stop Habitat for Humanity projects in San Francisco, one of my classics. And, and there, some of the neighbors were quoted as saying, look, I'm all for affordable housing, but I'm against any particular person or group making decisions for others and robbing people of their natural source of vitamin D. I'm talking about sunlight that's being blocked by a taller building. And next up, tenants. And the crisis is not our city alone to solve, and the ugly has to stop somewhere. All these are comments in opposition to development projects that resulted in litigation. And so you see cases where hundreds of thousands of dollars are raised to stop projects by Habitat for Humanity or other low-income projects. There is incredible force and being able to stop a project through litigation. So it's the other side of zoning, that even if zoning is reformed, if you're going to have affordable housing, you also have to reform the ability of people to bring lawsuits to stop it. We have a couple minutes. If anybody has questions specific for Mr. Burling, I have one so far, uh, and that is, have states or cities that have eliminated exclusionary zoning made allowances for deed restrictions, might that alleviate opposition to zoning reform? Yeah, I mean, certainly where you have deed restrictions, such as in Houston, people can say, look, I'm going to be able to keep the status quo here. But to have a deed restriction on an existing suburban neighborhood, uh, that becomes very difficult because you have to have the neighbors agree to have this deed restriction imposed on them. So in some states, that may be easier than others, but that's probably not the panacea for existing developments where a lot of the NIMBY neighbors come out of the woodwork to try to stop any nearby project. If you want to do a conversion of some old ramshackle homes or businesses and pull, turn it into multifamily, you're going to have people come out of the woodwork to do that. Now, I, I, when you talk about exclusionary zoning, I do want to just mention briefly the case of Mount Laurel Township in New Jersey, where there was an attempt to build a low-income housing in Mount Laurel. Mount Laurel Township had had African-American residents since the time of the Revolutionary War. It was becoming more and more unaffordable, being a suburb of Philadelphia. And when this proposal was put forward, the local zoning board said, no, we're not going to approve it. In fact, there was a meeting at a local African-American church where one of the local council members came by and said, we're not going to approve this project. And if you people can't afford to live here, you people just have to move somewhere else. Uh, and I, that's a quote. And so that led to years of activism, eventually reached the 
New Jersey Supreme Court in the Mount Laurel decision, which struck down this kind of exclusionary zoning. But it hasn't been easy because there has been subsequent litigation for the past 30, 40 years trying to enforce the Mount Laurel Township decision because every time somebody wants to come up with some reform, they figure out ways around it, uh, which are very problematic. And another question, this from Ben Frost. He said, continuing with the Hayekian theme, what states have developed special judicial processes uh, to challenge local land use decisions, probably decisions that add density and add housing? Um, And he mentioned New Hampshire recently established a housing appeals board. So essentially, uh, on the other side, um, as far as the judicial doing things to then be able to challenge the um, what the legislature has done to preempt the cities. I think that's what he's getting at. Yeah. So, I mean, the question is, where do you have legislation that is effective, uh, which is a different question. And to be effective, you have to go to court to enforce it. California has some nice legislation talking about local communities having their fair share of affordable housing. But it's proven to be very difficult to enforce in court. Uh, Now, recently, people have attempted to get into court. There's actually been some success in the UMBI movement to challenge opposition to new projects. Uh, But that's that's quite difficult. New Jersey, as I mentioned, has uh, a judicial enforcement of of its uh, anti-exclusionary zoning laws, And in fact, the courts have recently taken over more of that authority from local jurisdictions because the local jurisdictions just weren't getting the job done. I'm not familiar with what's happening in New Hampshire. But if you are going to be talking about having these kind of reforms to try to supplant local NIMBY opposition to multifamily or less or more dense housing, then you're also going to have to figure out a way of blunting the judicial opposition to that and supporting the judicial support of that in courts. So if you're thinking about reform, uh, you got to look at enforceability in courts. Who can sue? Who pays attorney fees? All these little details are incredibly important if you're going to have a reform that makes sense. And then finally, uh, and I really like this question because it's been my question as well. Aaron Lubeck asks, is there any hope of Euclid ever being overturned? What would the ideal case look like, which I assume would be a Supreme Court case? Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Jim? Well, you know, as a lawyer, I have these, these fantasy dreams And one of them is to go into court and overturn certain Commerce Clause issues, Wickard versus Filburn for those law nerds. That's the one where you couldn't grow wheat in your own backyard. And of course, my other fantasy dream is overturning Euclid versus Ambler. But I was in court once challenging an exclusionary zoning uh, case in, uh, in West Virginia. And the judge looked at me and said, now, are you really here to get rid of zoning? And I had to say, of course not, Your Honor. I'm here to have fairness and make sure due process is right and make sure these African-American tenants get to move into this project, et cetera. Uh, but you know, the fact is, it's kind of the third rail. Euclid versus Ambler is such an incredibly important case. But I think it's something worth chipping away at and eventually getting the court to look at it. And I think when it was adopted, it was seen to be good public policy. 
we have come around now to understand that Euclid has resulted in some very bad public policy in a lot of areas that has raised housing costs up to the roof where the housing of choice for many people are streets and tents. So I think it's become more apparent that it's a bad public policy choice. And like things with uh, eminent domain abuse, courts are less solicitous to eminent domain abuse than they used to be. We almost, uh, the, the Institute for Justice almost got Kilo overturned. I think that'll come. And I think a chipping back of Euclid will, will happen as it had in New Jersey when it was exclusionary zoning. Now, New Jersey's was based on a state statute, the general welfare clause. You have to try something different on a national scale. But I think it is certainly worth doing. And it's certainly one of our long-term goal as a Pacific Legal Foundation to get Euclid chipped back as much as you can to give more freedom to the owners of property to make sure that their property meets the market demand for housing. Not to force them to build multifamily if they don't want to, but to give them that option if that's what the market demands and that's what people in this country need. So I want to open it up now. Uh, We do have a few more questions that could go to any one of you, and I hope it'll work out and not be a free-for-all, but I'd like to open it up to, to any one of you that would like to answer these, uh, and then we'll give you a minute uh, each to be able to sum up your your main points. Uh, but we had a question earlier in this, this webinar uh, from Greg Brooks, and it says, looking at the totality of Houston's hands-off approach to zoning, which individual policies, in your view, uh, would would you say are the most portable, meaning to other cities, other localities, other states? So the, the, the simplest thing that doesn't get a lot of press, but I think a lot of cities could do this, is that we have a very sort of checklist oriented, I call it checklist permitting. I don't know that it has a name, but essentially it's a very clear, if you do these things, your permit will be approved. No arbitrary panels or zoning boards or people to buy off or convince or like, you know, the the whole like you've got to create some public amenities before your project gets approved. Taking all of that risk and and then also just compressing the times. Like we, we usually are able to approve permits in 30, 60 days. That makes a huge difference. So having a, a simple, very clear checklist and having very quick permit approvals can create a lot of of development. And then I'd say the other one that's that's more feasible is it's just being very loose I guess, you know, in Houston, it's it's if it's not deed restricted, it's wide open what can happen with it. I, you know, if, if, if that's not realistic in your city, then then I think it's the sort of the commercial and industrial zone. Say, look, do we really need 10, 15, 20 different land types, zoning types? Let's just protect single family neighborhoods because that's where the, the political hornet's nest is and let everything else be a lot looser, a lot freer, allow the mixed use, allow you know, a mall to be redeveloped into a community of townhomes and apartments and, and mixed use. Allow those sorts of things to happen and you will get new housing and it will help improve your affordability. Yeah, buy right zoning is another term for that, I think is incredibly important. And taking away the nuisance lawsuits that are so prevalent in a state like California. But if you meet the checklist, if you have the lot size correct, et cetera, et cetera, you should be able to build and you should be able to build relatively soon, not five to seven years of the typical time in California. Uh, that's portable. The other thing that I like that we've we've started in California, but don't have the teeth in it yet, is the idea that every community has to meet its fair share of new growth. Uh, so you can't have some communities blocking it out saying, we don't care necessarily how you're going to do it, 
but you must allow a certain amount of affordable housing in your community. Uh, and that could be through down, up, down zoning. I mean, up zoning in some cases, it could be through rezoning in other areas, could be by right zoning, but you have to let it happen. And you simply can't lock the door and you have to make that judicially enforceable or it's not going to happen. So I had another interesting question for, for any of y'all uh, from Tim McCormick. And he, he asked, he says, he says, Tory mentioned uh, neighborhood conservation districts as an exclusionary tactic. Uh, people are fighting against those interested in more affordable housing in Houston. Are there any opportunities to invert that and to essentially have what he calls neighborhood pro- progression districts? And I think that's maybe kind of what James was just talking about a little bit, but Mr. McCormick said that maybe there's been some discussion of using this sort of thing in places like uh, UK NIMBY in the UK has mentioned it. Um, have y'all, have any of you heard of kind of turning this on its head, uh, the issue of conservation districts into almost growth? The closest that I'm aware of is an attempt to have transportation oriented districts where er- where areas of towns and cities that are near transportation, that is subway lines, train lines, bus lines, would be allowed to develop up and do upzoning in those areas. Uh, Scott Wiener, Senator Scott Wiener in California, introduced such bills for several legislative sessions and ran into that proverbial hornet's nest of local opposition. And this wasn't a conservative or liberal opposition thing. It was both conservatives and liberals from people who already live in existing neighborhoods. So he ran into a hornet's nest of opposition from both Republicans, a few in the Assembly and Senate that were there, and Democrats. So um, it, it proved to be very, very difficult. But I think it's still something worth working on as we recognize the problem of having areas that it's a natural for multifamily housing if you're served by good transportation networks. Uh, and that would be a way to attempt to try it. And I think Scott, uh, Senator Weiner is going to try again in another modified form. Maybe you can get it done. So real quick, 30 seconds before I let you all wrap up. Um, what do you think the percentage chance is, and sticking with our theme, of another major city in the next 10 years or so, even further out than that, actually going the way of Houston and being able to get rid of their zoning regime? I'll bet on the horses first with my eyes shut. <laughs> I think there's a a relatively low chance of a a city with established zoning abolishing it completely, but I'm certainly optimistic that we'll continue to see the types of reforms that we've seen in recent years at both the local and the state level that make marginal reforms um, to existing zoning ordinances that can go a long way toward allowing more lower cost housing to be built. Yeah, I'm with Emily. I think it, once it's it's one of those things that once it's in place, it's it's very almost impossible to wipe it out. I think politically, but but this this like slow loosening. What are they the the boil the frog metaphor? Right, you just right. you just one degree at a time, and eventually you get there. Yeah, thank you for that. And uh, I want to give each of you uh, a few seconds to kind of wrap up your thoughts, and then we'll be done. Tori, can you start off? We'll go in the same order we did before. Sure. I, you know, my, my final just sort of summing up three recommendations would be uh, legalizing ADUs by right, accessory dwelling units, just building that into your single family zoning for your whole state if you can. 
Um, loosening up, as I mentioned before, commercial and industrial zones to allow multifamily and mixed use that can create a lot of housing with, with more minimal, uh, political opposition. And then finally, something I didn't mention before, but I've, 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 I've toyed around with as an idea that I think has a lot of potential. If you, to diffuse the NIMBYs for new developments, you know, has, I don't know if anybody's ever looked at this, but you know, if a new development's going to add some property tax increment. In theory, you could use some of that property tax increment to give a discount to the nearby neighbors who are impacted, right? Everybody within, you know, a uh, thousand feet of this development gets a 1% reduction in their property taxes or a 2% reduction. You know, simple buy-offs might diffuse a lot of that NIMBY opposition where they're like, well, wait a second, do I really want to fight this thing if it's going to cut my property taxes a couple, 3%, you know? I don't know of any cities that have tried that, but I think, you know, maybe that's something that could get accomplished at the state level is the option to do that. And then all of a sudden people are like, man, maybe I'm more up and develop to development. Emily? Yeah, thanks, Charles. State policymakers can and should step in when local authorities go too far in limiting housing construction and causing affordability problems. They should set certain protections for property owners to be able to use their land as as they see fit. They should certainly step in when local land use restrictions cause statewide problems, whether that's a housing affordability problem that's widespread or another sort of land use problem that's causing issues for more than one locality in the state. And finally, when localities go implement land use rules that benefit their residents, but harm residents across the, the rest of the state, state policymakers should recognize that that locality is going beyond their authority to address land use concerns and should step in accordingly. And Jim. And my final thoughts are that litigation to defend property rights and the rights of people to develop their property is something that should be continued and worked at harder and harder. Some of the best results in some of these challenges over the years have been based on property rights arguments on behalf of landowners. Uh, We've had increasing success over the past several decades in defending property rights and the takings clause, et cetera. That is a way of proceeding. Um, But these bad laws and bad policies can be challenged in court, and I think they should be. And just to quickly follow up on what Tori was saying, there has been a proposal and uh, folks in San Francisco, it hasn't reached any uh, real stage yet of requiring new developers to impose a new fee on new developers, which would be to pay off the neighbors, uh, kind of the pay off the NIMBY neighbors and the neighborhood so they would get behind a new project rather than opposing it. It's a clever idea, probably too clever by half, um, but I think things that def- def- support the property rights of owners, not necessarily extorting them so they could build, um, but uh, courts, but litigation to defend property owners is what's important to Pacific Legal Foundation, what's important to me. And I think that is a key p- part of the solution to our housing crisis. Well, thank you all so much for being a part of this conversation today. Again, this has been Tori Gaddis. Emily Hamilton and James Burling. Uh, We really appreciate their time today and also everybody who came on this webinar today. And we wanna thank the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, the Pacific Legal Foundation, and also Texans for Housing for bringing this conversation to everyone today. Uh, That's all the time we have for today, but uh, again, thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.